0: Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. I'm really excited to kick off this new season with what I think is a really important conversation with Dr. Karen Strubens. It's about reforming research assessment. Karen has a research background and PhD in chemistry and has transitioned to be a researcher, policy advisor and consultant on research policy and strategy she now manages a portfolio of activities, combining roles as a lead policy advisor for the Royal Society of Chemistry in the UK, and as a freelance consultant, focusing most recently on contributing to the drafting of a European level agreement on research assessment reform. And it's this agreement on reforming research assessment from COARA, the Coalition for Advancing Research Assessment, that's the reason I wanted to speak with Karen. In our conversation, we cover a range of important topics. We talk about concerns of the current research assessment approaches and the need for both top-down and bottom-up buy-in to create research culture change and what that change might look like. And she also gives an overview of the core commitments of the COARA agreement, reflecting much of what we have talked about. And this is around more qualitative assessments at individual, institutional and national levels. And also about enabling a greater diversity of people, career profiles, research problems and methodologies. We finish off with Karen reflecting on her own career choices and really interesting transitions and how these continue to be driven by knowing what her values are and what's important to her. I just need to note here that we recorded this interview at the end of May and as she says the work on the choir agreement has likely progressed on a lot since then especially as the working groups were just starting to get moving. So I'd really encourage you to go to the choir website and check out where it's at now and to get involved yourself. Thank you, Karen, for joining me today. I really wanted to talk to you because I saw that you had a key role in developing an agreement on reforming research assessment that was put out by the EU in July last year. But by way of introduction, do you want to give us a brief intro to your background?
1: Yeah, definitely. Mm. Thanks, and thanks for inviting me. So my name is Karen Strubens, and thinking about where I'm coming from, uh, I definitely still identify as a researcher and that's also my background. I have a PhD in chemistry and I also did a, a postdoc after that, but then I actually started to diverge away from the academic environment and I've been for the last years really involved in research innovation policy. And I've taken on a few roles over the years, but at the moment, I would say uh, I have a portfolio where I have a few heads on. Uh, The first one of those is that I'm the the lead policy advisor on research innovation for Royal Society of Chemistry. So that gets some of my time in the week. But then I'm also filling some of my time as a a consultant on anything related to, to research culture and research assessments. And then in voluntary capacity, I'm one of the uh, vice chairs of the Coalition for Advancing Research Assessment. That's the initiative I think, Geraldine, you wanted to talk about today a lot. Uh, and I'm also a governing board member of Euroscience. So I think that kind of captures briefly where I come from and briefly where I am
0: now. Yeah. I want to come back if we have time at the end to just explore how you got to you know, shift uh, transition to those roles. But to focus on the research culture and research policy issues, what are the big challenges do you see at the moment that makes this really critical that you're prepared to make this the focus of your work?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And it, of course, all interweaves and we can talk a bit about the, the kind of journey after, but I did already have concerns around how the research system is working Early on, I think in my first, second year of my PhD, I started to be concerned around some of the things I was seeing around me. And I really had a feeling that there is so much potential in what research as an endeavor can do for humanity and the planet. But we are really not reaching that potential at the moment. And I started to observe a lot of different issues And it's not until later, because one of my first roles in policy was working on the research culture program for the Royal Society, that Mm -hmm. I started to feel that all those things really hang together. There's a lot of different things that are causing problems, but somehow they're all related to each other. And I had a realization, and it was also one of the outcomes of that program at the time, That the biggest lever to not change one of them, but to influence all of them is really around the incentive system and how we assess. And that's really set me up to to pursue a path where that is the the main focus of what Mm -hmm. I try to do. So all my positions, all the different heads that I'm wearing at the moment, they all center around the questions of research culture and specifically using the lever of assessment to solve some of them.
0: So important, and that's a theme that comes up again and again in discussions is the impact of the current incentives systems that we have. What are you seeing in the people or hearing about from the people you're talking to, working with, or you know, what your understanding is of the current research on this, about the in- current incentive system?
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of ground to cover here, um, mm. but I think um At the moment, I think there is really a common, almost agreement. I mean, not everyone agrees, but I I think there is momentum around a common understanding on the one hand from the research community. I think those who really do research on assessment are really in agreement that the way that uh, certain, especially journal-based metrics and also article-based metrics are used, that it's really not always appropriate and that there's a lot of kind of trickle-down effects on not just researchers, but also the research. So I think both both the research suffers, the the, the scientific record suffers, but also the people behind it. We're not really getting the most out of those people. And I think something that I'm also hearing more and more is that there is this focus on outputs, really kind of this very narrow end of the journey, it's not even the end. It's supposedly somewhere in the middle. You should be then building on those to achieve impact. But there's this very strong focus on the outputs with very little attention for the things that come after, although impact is picking up, but also the things that come before, more importantly, the whole process of research. And I think also with moving outside academia, I started to realize how little focus there is on the outputs in other environments. There's much more focus on how do people behave, what are the skills they acquired. And these are things that I've just not visibly seen within an academic setting. And it's not something people talk to me about from that setting because they're not aware how important these things are outside. So I think there's on the one hand, the issues that people talk about, but there's also really important these certain things they don't talk talk about because most people who are in academia have been there, they've grown up there, they've been there their entire life. And there are certain things that I think would be interesting to them that they don't talk about because they don't know about it. So I think those are maybe the two sides to, to think about really.
0: Yeah. And there's also that tension, isn't there, of even if people might be aware when you're in the system and on this treadmill chasing these incentive-based quantitative metrics, you're moving, doing that sort of thing, and that there's space to actually stand back and reflect and make deliberate changes or to talk about this. It's a bit hard when there are ongoing evaluation cycles within our universities or within our grant funding programs and so on.
1: Definitely. And I mean, it's a question we always get because lots of universities have started to not explored necessarily how to assess differently, but at least they've started to think about how do we offer more training? Mm. How do we offer training on all the kind of things people are struggling with? How do we offer mental health groups? How do we offer all the kind of things to solve some of these issues? And not to discredit any of these initiatives, I think they're important, but sometimes what I'm seeing is, and and it's also just coming from my own background as a postdoc, People sign up to these things, but then their experiment in the lab fails and the priority is repeating the experiment. They will just not show up for these things because they need to publish that paper for their career progression. So it gets the absolute priority. And despite all the efforts to have trainings, to have support events, it's just the thing that drops off the list most often. Yeah. So I think unless we can't embed those things in the incentive system and in what supports the career progression, it's very hard to convince people to make the time and space for these things. Yeah. And I think that's one of my ambitions is really to contribute to an assessment system that can allow people space for this without being punished in their career progression.
0: And in fact, rewarded if, you know, if, if it's actually recognized in the incentive system, valued and rewarded.
1: Exactly, exactly. And we can see how in other sectors this works. People are rewarded to develop certain skills that are not output driven. They're more around behavior. They're more around mm-hmm. the way they mm-hmm. do things. Mm. Um, you know, there's really big questions around how to embed something that like that in a sector and in an environment where it's almost a big unknown at the moment.
0: Yeah, yeah. I had a little smile to myself when you said about people prioritising, fixing up their broken experiment than going to the course that they signed up for because I ran a course recently. It was around saying yes, no, around setting boundaries and setting priorities, and I think we had 12 people signed up and three turned up on the day, and these were all postdocs and for similar sort of reasons. And it was just ironic that the course that could help them manage this in a longer term got reshuffled at the last minute because of other shorter term priorities.
1: Yeah, and it's usually really not it's not even that they don't want to be there or it's no. really just this complete drive towards this one very narrow set of things that will help them move forward. Yeah. And and I think we are putting them in, in a difficult position because many of them know they need these things. And we are putting them constantly in these dilemmas between what they know they need, but what helps their career progression or what they know is best for science versus what is best for their career progression, because there's quite a big gap at the moment between the two. So we're constantly really, in a way, in an unfair way, causing dilemmas to people. And in the UK as well, there's lots of conversations now around integrity and misconduct And I think of course everyone has a personal responsibility, but we're not making it easy for people because we're really setting this gap between what are the things to do, what is the space to take to think, to develop, versus the kind of speed we're expecting them to produce results with. The two are really compatible. So we're really asking people to do something very difficult, to constantly almost on a daily basis, make choices between these two, between what's best for science, what's best for career progression, but also between what they need for their personal development versus what they need for career progression. So it's just not an easy position, I think, we put researchers
0: in at the moment. And what you also say there points to it's great that there is an increased awareness around mental health, and I'm, I'm definitely seeing that far more in the last couple of years. I think COVID has been helpful as well as bad in that respect. It's made it normal to discuss much more now. And I also see the value in individual initiatives and people taking courses and doing training, but they are useless strategies if we don't get the systemic change. Like you talked about the lever being the incentive systems and the whole research culture and just changing behaviours more generally what's the training, what's the process for creating that sort of change?
1: That's a good question. It's not an easy one to answer. And I think the reason why the kind of the initiatives more at the end of the process, let's say, are so important is because those systemic ones are going to take time. Yeah, I think we're on a good trajectory in terms of already gaining understanding that there are problems that really need to be looked at. And I think the things that we will need to really get there is on the one hand, senior management buy-in at every organization and institution in the sector. Because um, I think it's very important to have researchers on board, but I also feel we have many of them on board, especially early career. I think the barrier at the moment is more at at, at, man- at management levels. We really need to get buy-in because if we want to get systemic change, it will need to really be organizational change and that will really need the drive from people at the top. We have seen the very big examples where change has happened. For example, in the Netherlands, I think Frank Midema is one of those people who in a senior position has really just changed so much in his institution. And he will always say how important it was to be at that level, to be able to make that change. So I definitely think we need also the the bottom-up, but I think without the top-down and without that senior management input, We just won't get there because it is a systemic uh, issue. Um, And I also think we will need to go further than what we're thinking about now, because I think research assessment is a very important lever to think about. But there's also the issue around precarity of careers. There's the funding cycles and there's the amount of evaluation that goes on. Researchers are probably the most evaluated professionals, I would imagine across sectors there's every output is evaluated separately they are evaluated by their institution by funders to get funding I do think with the current reform we'll be able to do a lot but I do think we'll still bounce on some boundaries around the life cycle the funding length of funding schemes those kind of things so I do think there will be a few other issues that we will need to start to think about and start to solve to, to really get to some of the achievements we want to get to in terms of changing the culture.
0: Yeah, totally agree. I'm hearing as well there's in terms of the spectrum of where the changes are needed. So there's what we can do as individuals to better skill or to cope in the day-to-day. There's what we could do as an organisation in creating Our evolving, changing different local research cultures and practices. And that's embedded in the biggest institutional policy level systems around government policies that set the funding programs or set the evaluation criteria. And that's complicated as well, isn't it? Because you've got national initiatives, priorities, and you've got international practices and disciplinary practices crossing over as well. And it, it's a really hard space to, to think about when you start unpacking all those layers.
1: Definitely. And I mean, the real answer is that we will need change at all those levels. Yes. But also we'll need to ensure that those levels are communicating to each other. Because one of the issues we're seeing also when we're talking about the setup of the coalition is that there are certain levels, like for example, maybe institutional levels who want to move forward, but they're then bound by rules set by the level above that they just can't get around. So unless change happens elsewhere, they are actually kind of stuck in that space. So one of the things that I see as the the kind of big things that the coalition will bring is a space to actually bring all these levels together and to enable discussions. So not to take away any autonomy. I think each organization should be able to think about what it is they can do to progress. And of course, there there is the agreement that sets a very common direction for everyone. But there's a lot of space within that to explore and to think about how to implement that. But at the same time, there needs to be constant exchange of information so that we ensure we're not creating different things at different levels or in different organizations that contradict each other. So I think that will be really the value of the coalition to create that space for discussion. But you're right, it's immensely com- complex. And you know sometimes I refer to it as one of those wicked problems and we will need dialogue at a lot of different levels and including also there's of course this big discussion around the um, quantitative versus qualitative approaches. Uh, where some say the the qualitative is definitely the most important at individual level. But when we go to more aggregate levels, we need some of that quantitative for it to be manageable. Um, And I think in a sense, I think as as humanity almost, we've become obsessed with measuring things, uh, not just in academia. I think it's also well understood at the moment that GDP is not the best measure um, for success at a very different level. So I do think there are bigger questions, not just in academia, but in more general terms about how we've become as, as a society to define success and how that shapes behaviors. So um, I sometimes hope that we can set an example in academia to and in the research space more broadly because um, it's not just academia. There's research going on um, in other sectors as well that we need to involve in those discussions. But we can hopefully... Uh, really reflect on how it can be done in a way that we don't uh, cause those bad behaviours and, and send mm. those bad incentives. Yeah. But it's not an easy challenge and it will need really buy-in and thinking and support from all those different stakeholders that you describe.
0: Mm. One of the tensions that I experience just in a day-to-day sense is being passionate about the need for these sort of changes and having these more holistic measures and valuing research culture and all of the other things that we've talked about and recognising that my current PhD students or postdocs are still going to be working or playing in the system as it is now while it's still undergoing this transition. Any hints or suggestions about how to navigate that and how to help them make choices that both start to play out the behaviors that we want to see but not jeopardize their own careers
1: it's a difficult it's very difficult i think it's really about as you say it's finding a balance it's exploring with them how much can i go in the right direction without losing out on any opportunities and I think there's already many kind of ways to participate in things like open science in thinking about at the team level, how to talk about inclusion and diversity, how to Mm -hmm. incorporate some of these elements, but sometimes also being frank with someone in the team and say, look, in an ideal world, this is what I would do. But thinking about your career progression, you might need to compromise in, in X or Y ways, um, I think we need to be honest uh, about that and be able to really have honest conversations. Um, but I also think there are small things we can do to start really changing the narrative. Like one example I often give is I remember here in the lab in Cambridge when someone would say that they happily announced they've they've published a paper. No matter who asked the first question, it was always which journal was it in? You know, that doesn't need to be the first question. We can easily ask a different question about the content, about maybe who it's important for. So I think while we don't have the means to immediately change the big things and there will need to be compromises, there are many examples like this where we can start to change the small things on a day-to-day basis. And I do think that those will also already have an impact. Also, just on how those people grow up, And are shaped as a professional, whether that's within academia or going to other sectors. So I think there's things to do around that. Also, can we? I remember my own professional development conversations in academia. They were, well, non existing, or at least not uh, during the postdoc where they were maybe most important for me because I was trying to kind of change track. They were really based on the research, they were just about the experiments. I think one thing PIs can do is is start to really have development conversations that really talk about the things, the behaviors, the competencies, the things that are important. So I think there are definitely things we can start to do um, to signal uh, that we're moving in a different direction without jeopardizing the career progression. But it's a balance, and it's not going to always be an easy conversation.
0: I like just the small things that we can start to do in what we talk about. And we've also just tried celebrating when people submit a paper because that's really what they're totally in control of. And whether it gets accepted or not depends upon reviewer too, as we know. So, yeah, also just trying to celebrate getting something done, having written it up. When you talk about behaviour and competencies, this is getting to the nitty-gritty of our everyday research cultures. What other sort of things would you be wanting to highlight there for us?
1: I mean, and now I'm really speaking in personal capacity because this is an idea that I've developed over the last few years. And I know there's others, especially in the research and research space, who are keen to explore this further, but it's not something that's been tested much yet. One of the approaches that I've seen used outside so in, when I went into a different career direction is, for example, in interviews or in in performance reviews, the use of kind of competency-based approaches where people really ask you to reflect on how you do things. So ask questions about giving an example of a, a really difficult management, people management situation and how you've handled that, whether there's anything you would do differently if in that situation again. And I really would encourage to start to put at least a reflection behind that okay. in academia, because one of the things, and now I'm kind of touching a bit, maybe on the journey element. One of the things that I really had to learn when I transitioned was to reflect on how I do things. I had never had to do that. And really? I was around, I don't know, I was probably almost nearing my early thirties. I had never really had to, in a conversation within my previous environments in different universities I was in, no one had really pushed me to reflect on how I did certain things, on how I approached something and how I put a strategy in place for something. And this is one of the things I really had to learn. And it's so valuable to do that, to make time for that. So I I would say that is, I think, one of the things that for me will be important to somehow Mm -hmm. embed um, in the sector. And I think assessment is is a good way to do that because it means everyone will need to get involved. It's not optional. And it's not clear maybe yet how or where it would be fitting because it might not fit in every assessment process, but it's something that I think can bring a lot of value to help people to really reflect on the way they do things. And it relates to a lot of culture teams, inclusivity, open science, integrity, For all those areas, you could really think of questions where people need to think about, have I been in a situation where I felt that my research or someone else's research, there was maybe an issue or there was a gray zone? And how did I deal with that? How, How would I do it differently next time? So it's really almost embedding some of those difficult conversations into what we're doing. So I feel that's an approach that's not talked about so much. Now it's more about... How can we measure open science? Can we measure how many open science, how many open access publications or how many data sets? I would really encourage that. I'm not saying we we shouldn't do any of that and especially at aggregate level to see where we're making progress. But on an individual level, I believe it will be more valuable to be able to have narratives and conversations around how to deal with some of this. And that can also come back a bit to the previous point, Geraldine, around could you in a conversation talk with people who are now in that transition phase in their career? How, how do you balance the two? Mm-hmm. If you have to make a decision on a publication, will you give more weight to publishing open access or to publishing in a certain journal? How do you deal with those kind of dilemmas? You know.
0: So talking about what we need to, talking about research and how we do it and what you're saying also requires... Managers, leaders, senior people to be trained in how to ask good questions and how to engage in these conversations. Because you said before about we haven't been socialized into this as a way of being and doing research.
1: Yes, definitely. And, and the, the leadership aspect is very important there. I think this is where at the moment we experience a lot of the, the barriers. Um, because we are now, we are in a system where leaders are really not accustomed to any of those things. And many of them also don't see a need for them. I really notice that in conversations, they have a feeling that they have been used to doing something a certain way and there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing it that way. So there's a bit of a disconnect there. So there's, of course, a question around, can we already enthusiast, make enthusiasts some of the, those coming into kind of, say, the next generation? Are we going to be able to convince those that are there currently? I'm, I'm honestly not so sure what the answer to that is. Mm. But also one of the things I'm really sometimes breaking my head around is how can we increase the, the mobility between sectors? Because for me, that would be, I mean, it's almost a chicken and egg situation because I think if we can have more focus on process, competence, skill, it will be less Difficult for people from outside to come in because they'll have things to talk about. They don't have to just have a publication record. They can talk about all those other things in the same way. But at the same time, and then when you bring those in, that will also shift how things are done because you'll have people who bring experiences from other environments and who will be much more open, even at that senior level, to some, you know, they'll be more socialized with some of these approaches. But of course, at the moment, we have neither. We don't have the in-stream of those people and we don't really have the routes to bring them in because Mm. the assessment system is a barrier for them to move into those areas you know we need to get either the in-stream first or change the assessment system Mm. so we can bring them in Mm. because there's a lot of appetite to have more mobility but I I do feel the assessment system is one of the barriers to be able to uh, achieve that and I do think it would bring a lot of richness to all sectors if we could have more of a Um, stream of people uh, in and out and also put less pressure because now a lot of people who leave academia they still feel some kind of failure because they think there's no way to ever come back whereas if you would have a more dynamic system where people can go in and out I think you would to some extent solve some of those issues Mm. um, because people wouldn't feel if I leave now there's never a way to come back to that environment
0: yeah And also solve some of the big societal challenges that, again, you raised at the beginning about one of the motivators for why this is so critical to address. So is that that an example of diversity and inclusion that you just talked about, like the the diversity of backgrounds that we might be enabling in our processes?
1: Definitely, because I, I do think at the moment with the narrowness of what we're assessing there's really a, almost this kind of one type of profile that kind of makes it all the way to the end. I mean, I'm being a bit uh, black and white now. Uh, it's probably a bit more gray than that. Um, but I do think we're missing out on a lot of different talents. And then also the question is, what does that mean for the research we're missing out on? Because I really enjoyed that uh, Invisible Women, the book by Caroline Creado Perez and She gave this example. It's more on the innovation side about the first Apple uh, health app, not including anything on the menstrual cycle because they didn't have a woman in the room. So no one thought about it. I mean, they they missed out on something huge, absolutely huge. Uh, And then there's also the stories around how, you know, endometriosis as a disease has not received that much attention because it's just not a problem that those maybe in charge, m- mostly male, had recognized. So I, I do think, and these are just examples on the gender side. I'm sure there's examples mm, yeah. in all types of diversity direction. So I think it's not just which people are we excluding, which profiles are we excluding, which IDs are we excluding, but also whose problems are we not solving. So I think that's both diversity of people IDs and also the the research problems that we mm-hmm. really need to think about. Yeah
0: one of the things that gets talked about in the um, coalition agreement that we'll get to in a tick is also diversity of research methods and approaches and disciplinary perspectives and theoretical perspectives, which is often a dimension of diversity that doesn't always come to mind first.
1: Yeah, and I think that's very important to also be appreciative of the methods that are used across sectors, so indeed bringing in maybe some of those people with experiences elsewhere, but also of disciplines to recognize each other's methods. Because one thing that's often coming up also in conversations around the quantitative versus qualitative is subjective, quantitative is objective, which I think anyone who's been a bit deeper involved in these conversations really knows it's not true. But to some extent, I also sometimes see some people in the harder sciences kind of almost discredit some of the methods used in the softer sciences and often unknowingly because they often really don't know that much about those subject areas. And it's actually causing problems not just for the methodologies used in assessment itself, I would say. Um, So I do think that this diversity of recognising Methods that have been established and they've been established for many years is is important not just for the scientific endeavor but even just for progressing
0: assessment itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we know from the research that interdisciplinary research is harder to get funded because people often find it difficult to review from different methodological methodological perspectives or disciplinary perspectives.
1: Yes, and I think sometimes also don't have that much confidence, maybe methods they're not so familiar mm. with. And I do think there's also an element of trust there in, you know, where there is recognized mm. established methodologies. Um, I think that also does need to be included and, and recognized. Mm. Yeah. Um, but it's a challenge, interdisciplinary one, definitely.
0: Yeah. So you talked about the coalition before. Do you want to explain what the coalition is and what work it's done.
1: Yeah, definitely. In a few, I think it's now two years ago, there was a process that started with a consultation where there was a real- realization uh, coming from a number of organizations who had been working on this for a, a, a while that there are issues with assessment. And the Commission wanted to understand. So, that's the European
0: Commission. The European Commission. It,
1: but, yeah, sorry. Yep. Uh, so, the European Commission wanted to really better understand views of different stakeholders in the landscape. So they first started a consultation um, and there was a report really with the conclusions of that, but also some principles to think about how to move forward and how to really start to change the way assessment works. And so this is where I came into the process. I was invited to be part of drafting an agreement And the agreement was building on the principles from that big consultation with lots of stakeholders. But the idea was really to put down on paper in very specific commitments, a common direction for the sector to move in. And alongside it, also a time frame to say, OK, we'll do these things by a certain time. And this agreement was published in July 2022. And so the commitments, some of them, I mean, are very close to what we've already been talked about. The first one's really around recognizing diversity in contributions to research, but also all the different roles that people play. And then the other core commitments are really around primarily using qualitative assessments, but also avoiding uh, any inappropriate uses of metrics and the use of rankings in of institutions in research assessments. And then there's a range of kind of supporting commitments to enable more kind of the how we do it. So this is these four are like the what. And the time frame put to it was for organizations to say, okay, I commit to this, to have an action plan with very concrete milestones after one year of signing. And to then also give a, a, a more elaborate progress, which is based on just self assessing themselves after about five years of signing. Um, And so this agreement is really what this coalition is coming together around. So after the agreement was published, there was uh, some time that was taken really to discuss how the coalition should function, which governance structure it should have. But so in December last year, there was a Constitutive Assembly bringing together all the organizations that wanted to be part of the coalition. And I have to check the exact numbers, but we're well over 450 members member organizations, because it's open to organizations at the moment. And so the mission of the coalition is really to achieve this systemic reform that we've already spoken about. And the the vision is really around the the direction that the agreement sets. So that's why I wanted to first touch on the agreement. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, this is just to start. We just really started uh, end of last year. But at the moment, we are forming working groups, so all our members are able to be involved in proposals to set up working groups to really start to move forward the agenda and really kind of think about how can we achieve the commitments and how can we achieve the mission uh, of the coalition. So a lot of the work is still coming, it's ahead of Mm -hmm. us, Um, but we've been really encouraged by the momentum, the enthusiasm, the amount of people who are really like, okay, we really need to... We really need to do something. We've talked about this for a long time, but it's really time for action and for seeing change implemented. So I'm quite positive about what will come in the next few months once these working groups are approved and can really start uh, the work of the coalition and can really start collaborations with organizations in in a lot of countries, not just in Europe, because the initiative now is really Global focus, and we have quite a bit of work to do to achieve some of the international strategy that we're setting out at the moment. But we are starting to see also organisations from
0: outside Europe join slowly. That's very um exciting. That there's 450 so far signed up. If in signing up and putting in agreements, like you talk about organisational levels, and I'll come to that in a tick, is the EU itself looking at how to implement, I'm holding up a copy of the paper here that no one can see because we're going to be on audio. Um, Is the EU itself also looking at the agreement to review, say, the the funding criteria for the Horizon 2020 or whatever um, upcoming funding programs they have?
1: Yes, so they are a signatory. The European Commission as a funder is a signatory of the agreement. Um, so they will, in the same way that everyone else will, they will put in place an action plan to think about how they will implement the change and they will release it at the same time as other signatories. Um, and I've also been uh, speaking, for example, specifically to the MSCA unit who are working on the Skłodowska-Curie fellowships, and they also are really asking questions about, okay, what do we need to change in our evaluation processes to be completely aligned? And I mean, they are already quite ahead. I think they, they already align with, with a lot what's in the commitments, but there's definitely uh, also thinking across the European commission around what their action plans need to look like to fully mm. align with the initiative.
0: So for people listening, what would they need to do to talk to or convince their organization to sign up to it? Do you have any suggestions or any good practices that could serve as role models for how to increase that membership?
1: Definitely. And obviously, I'm a lot also in conversations where the audience are more individual researchers. So usually what I say is try to find at least already in your department who would be responsible for being involved in some of these conversations. And that's usually not too difficult. Sometimes finding the right person at the kind of central university level can be a bit more difficult, but there should be people on the departmental level who can at least point to to the right direction. And then, yeah, really have the conversations also within your own team, with your supervisor, within your own department around why you think this is important, because we definitely see that where there's appetite from a lot of the kind of researchers, it, it does it takes some time, but it does tend to really reach the right levels and at least cause some kind of uh, discussion and and uh, initial conversations around whether uh, it makes sense to sign up or not. Also, um, we have a secretariat. All the information is on the koara.eu website that are really responsive to any questions that people might have about what it means to become part, what the maybe the the requirements are, but also the many opportunities that it presents, the benefits for the organization. So there's also definitely easy ways to gain information if people want to first inform themselves before having the conversations. Um, But it's really partly trying to really find the people who have uh, a bit of gravitas to to put these kind of things on the agenda of the conversations Mm. where they need to be held. And that can really just start at the departmental level usually.
0: Yeah. And then, as you said, there's all the work to say, what does this mean? How do we operationalize these principles and how do we put them into practice? Yes,
1: definitely. And one thing that we found very important in putting in the commitment. So one of these supporting commitments that I very briefly touched on is to ensure that the resources are there to actually then follow through. And that doesn't necessarily mean financial. It can also be staff capacity. Maybe there's someone who's working on a related issue who could make space in their portfolio to really dedicate time to this. But just to indeed ensure that when an organization signs up, they have thought about how to accommodate Mm. the change. And, And of course, this will differ for different institutions how much resources is. But I think even if there is just already a bit of staff capacity to take care of this, to follow the discussions, um, to be in those exchanges. Uh, there can be differences in how active people participate. There will be people who lead a working group, but equally there will be organizations that feel, okay, all we have capacity for is to focus on our own action plan and to listen into some of the conversations so we know we're going roughly in the same direction. And that's absolutely fine. You know, There's mm-hmm. space for all those that diversity within the coalition, uh, but we do ask to have kind of a minimum resource allocation to ensure that the commitments can be really followed through. Mm.
0: You you talked about um, the, the four main principles of the agreement, and one of them you talked about was not relying on rankings, for example. To me, that could be one of the hardest things, apart from the, the obvious sort of journal metrics stuff, but The ranking system is just so toxic and people are happy to be critical of it when they're not ranked highly. But as soon as they're ranked highly, they do all the press releases. And I know that there are some institutions that have their tenure track or promotion agreements that require evaluators to assess them against other researchers at equally ranked institutions and all of this sort of language. I think that's going to be one of the hardest things to change. What's your opinion around the ranking system and how we can really shift that?
1: I I agree with you. It is the most difficult one. And I'm going to be very honest. It's been the one that's been most kind of contentious and most discussed when we were drafting the agreement. Um, And in the end, we very specifically worded it that research assessment of institutions should not be used in research assessment specifically. Uh, because saying anything in more general terms was causing a lot of discussion. I'm I'm really happy it's in there in that form, I'm going to be honest, because I do think it's important it's in there. But I think the key thing that was always coming back is it can trickle down. So some of the language that you're referring to, hopefully at least that will already decrease. So that's not seeing a complete ban of rankings in all the kind of uses they have in attracting students and Mm. so on, but at least start there. Of course, at the same time, there's really appetite to, to really think about do we really need this as a format for some of the other uses they have. And I really, iNorms, I don't know whether you're familiar with iNorms more than our rank initiative. So they have provided this kind of alternative where universities can talk in a more narrative way about the things that they feel they're uniquely delivering to students. So Mm -hmm. I do think there's exploration also of how can we do things differently in that space. But as as you say, these rankings are very ingrained in the system at the moment in how universities talk about their achievements, but also their strengths. And that will be something very difficult to, to move away from. I do think that there will be work within the coalition to start to think about some of this, but it's one of, I think, as you rightly point out, one of the harder problems to think about how to move on that. But at the same time, I think there are things that can be done already in assessment specifically around really thinking about where is this language inappropriate and it will be in, in most cases. And at the same time, yeah, there are these initiatives really looking at the, 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 the broader use of rankings in setting out what the strengths and the unique selling points of universities are. And interestingly, I was also in a conversation a while ago, giving a workshop with all kind of younger universities who were more maybe focused also on, on kind of knowledge transfer. And we were, as part of a conversation on assessment, the starting point that I often try to, to get people to think about is if you have to really think about the things you're proud of, just as an institution, What are the things that come to mind? And and one of the things that came out of this specific conversation was regional development, attracting people who maybe were first-generation students, really changing the, really making a local impact in that sense. And then the conversation went on, is this something that's recognized, that you feel is recognized, that's taken into account, for example, in these rankings? And, you know, it was a bit of an eye-opener because, all these institutions are, are the kind of the representatives of these institutions were realizing well, these are not really things, the things we're most proud about are not things we're really rewarded or recognized for at the moment. So it did give an incentive to think about why change is, is so important. Um so I do think that we can have the kind of conversations that make it very clear why these rankings are not probably the right way of bringing out all the diverse contributions that institutions make. So now we're looking at a different level. Yeah. Uh, but how to practically move away from them, I think we're at the start of that conversation rather than at the end where we already see clear solutions.
0: But it's still so encouraging that the conversation is starting. And I see that the coalition agreement builds on things like DORA and the metric-tied work in the UK and so on. And I'm also seeing things at the moment, I know, that in Austria there's the funding, the, the government sort of department is starting to have discussions about revising, renewing, research evaluation. I know that Australia is currently running a, a survey asking for input on this. So it is an encouraging time and it yeah, will take time.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I'm just also thinking when I had the first kind of Experiences in in advocating for this 10 years ago, during my PhD, I was involved in this uh, action group in Flanders, where we were trying to talk to all the different um, political parties in Flanders about changing specifically the key that was used to allocate money between the different uh, universities in Flanders, because there as well, they were using certain metrics that were then trickling down to the assessment of, of individual researchers. And it was an interesting experience because I was quite young and it was something I hadn't done before and I learned a lot from it, but we really hit a wall. It was very clear that there were a few people who were taking the decisions and we weren't really getting anywhere. So if I compare that experience with where we are now 10 years later, it is encouraging. You know, There's a lot of work ahead of us and there's many issues to still be resolved, but at the same time, I think those who have been consistent in working in the space for a number of years can also see how much progress has been made, yes. just even in terms of the number of people who are talking about this, the number of organizations who actually are recognizing that there is an issue. We're in a very different place already. So I think if we can make the same amount of progress or ideally even more in the next 10 years, you know, I'm quite optimistic uh, about
0: that. Yes, so oh am I really am, because it has to change. It's not sustainable the way it is at the moment. Um, Just going back to something you said before, I, I know that there's the whole shift to narrative CVs as part of the emphasis on quality and people being able to argue their own value. And I know that you were developing one of the first templates for that when you were working at the Royal Society. But I had never thought about it at an institutional level. You know, like an institution can develop its narrative CV, which is interesting and even country le- country levels too
1: exactly I think we don't need to pour down everything in numbers I mean of course mm. there are I, I'm often in conversations about where they have value and I, I understand that there are situations where they have value but I do think there's a lot we can do with narratives and with giving people space to focus on the things that they find important because the, the numbers often narrows down to a few things that have organically been chosen or historically been chosen to be important. And they exclude a lot of other things. Indeed, the more than our rank is an institutional level where there is space for, for organizations to really think about what it is they bring as strengths. And I, I think we can do that at national level as well too. And I think there are some countries that are very in regard what, what are their research strengths. So I, I I definitely see that we can do that at the f- different levels. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, it is probably the most important at the individual level, because Mm -hmm. there we are really dealing with people in different circumstances and contexts and not giving space Mm -hmm. to explain some of that, I think is really suppressing diversity, suppressing inclusivity. So I think we can do it at all levels. But for me, it is the most important that we that is the primary method at the individual level.
0: And that really needs breaking of the superstar researcher and that competitive culture. I also recognize that if you've got a hundred applications for a position and you only want to send 10 applications out for review and you've got to do that sifting process, it may not, I don't I think there's still lots of tensions we need to work out about how do we bring a qualitative eye to doing this larger scale stuff and how do people still argue for their own quality when they're so used to the metrics but you know, i i feel like there's there'll be progress and we'll work it out
1: yeah and i think there's also there's been also conversations i've been where someone says okay we need the metrics because we can peer review every article of that person but those are not the only two options mm. there are lighter touch qualitative elements you can look at that don't require you to read ten research publications back to front so I think we haven't explored all the options yet frankly and I think there's also a question about how often we evaluate Mm. because there's also often the argument okay qualitative assessment all good and but it takes a lot more resource and time but then my question is do we need to evaluate as much as we do could we evaluate less but do it better you know so I think there are a few aspects that we still need to really think about and Sometimes there's a lot of focus on one element, like the narrative CV is a great instrument. I am very enthusiastic about it, but it's not the the kind of golden bullet. We need to look at the entire process and ensure that it's embedded in a process where there's changes at other stages and in different ways as well. So I think there is a lot of opportunity still to look at other parts of the process, to explore methods that we just aren't used to yet and haven't used yet yet um but also to really think about frequency and whether we need to evaluate so often
0: do you have a just a, a brief sort of one or two examples of other methods or other light touch ways of bringing that sort of qualitative lens
1: yeah i mean and here i'm drawing again a bit more on my experience in in other sectors with what i often also see with academic positions is the role descriptions are very broad people feel like they need to send in a 10 page CV because they need to cover all the grounds. Whereas in other sectors, descriptions are often much narrower. And I think there is a question also around do academics need to do everything because they they start to have a broader and broader portfolio. Or would it be beneficial to find a compromise between thinking, for example, about institutional and then departmental strategy and thinking about, okay, We have this interdisciplinary team, but we really need someone who focuses more on the outreach elements or policy engagements. Can we hire someone who has that in their profile and balance that still with ensuring there's independence for people to develop in the ways they want to? So it could be that we don't go, of course, all the way to what other sectors do, but there's maybe a profile that gives some flexibility, but also gives a few more specific requirements as to what we're looking for in a person. And then you can really start to write very short paragraphs around these are the things that I've done that address the exact requirements you're looking for. If you're looking for a person with this type of more specific profile, you can explain usually in quite a concise way how you fit that without having to give the whole list of all your experiences that you have over your career. So that's one example where you would need a bit of, see a bit of change in the way that jobs are positioned. You'd need a bit more work on from institutions and departments to set out what are the skills they need to complement the teams that they are trying to build and the achievements, the, the mission, the vision they're trying to achieve. Mm. But that then would make it easier to get to much more concise formats, which would need much less time to review. So that's just one example.
0: That's Great. I think we probably need to head to wrapping up to let you go. And I had said I wanted to talk a little bit about your journey, and you've already reflected on that at different points. One thing I do want to reflect back from what you've said is uh, any of us, if like what you've illustrated, is any of us at any stage of our career can be part of changing the conversation of arguing for change. Because you talked about in the Flanders example, even ten years ago, you were still a PhD student. Yet you were there in the mix of it, making these arguments.
1: Yes, and I think it's partly also about setting priorities because I I, some, I don't know why. Maybe it's maybe I have to thank my parents, but I had the confidence to do other things. So I was not only focusing on my research, and that's been really a red. Throughout my career, mm. I've always had the confidence to make space for the things that I found important, and I must say, it didn't. I didn't really see any suffering in my career as a researcher, as a consequence of it. So I do think it is possible, but it was also because I was able to set boundaries very easily. So I think it it is possible, but it also really depends on what you prioritize and what's important to you. And I think the key thing there is to understand what your values are. And the thing I've tried to do is really live and work in line with those values. And it's driven a lot of the choices that I've made in my career, in the volunteering that I've done in the things I've dedicated my time to. And for me, it's worked out because it's got me to a point where I'm I'm really enjoying all the things I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, But that is something I think in a way where I've been lucky because that was instilled in me and it's not something everyone has an easy time with I think setting boundaries saying no choosing for your values is not something that's easy and for some people will require support and training that's maybe not always there so Mm. I do recognize that challenge in itself but I do feel that's what's been helping me to do some of these things and as you say we all have a voice and I did refer to this early example where I used it it wasn't very effective uh, but I learned from it and it helped my personal development and I do feel it's contributed to where I am now so I think we also sometimes need to recognize that where things haven't quite worked out in that moment they do still contribute to 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 our learnings and to who we become as a person and what we can maybe achieve later on.
0: That's really brilliant, Karen. I think that's just lovely. Are there any final things that you would want to add or say before we wrap?
1: Yeah, I think maybe just one thing to still refer to is, you know, I knew I was gonna change direction quite early in my postdoc. So I started my postdoc in Cambridge in 2015 and I think in the first few weeks I already was talking to the career service because I I just felt at that moment I want to finish this postdoc but that's going to be there's going to be a turning point then I'm going to need to do something where I'm just working with people more and with samples less that was one of the motivations Mm
0: -hmm. so people is one of your core values
1: (laughs) yes definitely Mm. and even knowing that so I transitioned in the end in 2018 so three years later. It was still so hard. I still felt that failure that I talked about earlier of leaving, although I had made that decision three years earlier. So you have to imagine the stigma around it to still feel that way at that point. But what I did realize is that a lot of the things that I thought that I would miss from the academic environment, the freedom, the independence, um, the kind of the, the, the space for thinking, those aren't things I've lost. I still have been able to build those in my career. And I've also changed a lot uh, in terms of kind of roles and jobs uh, in the last few years. And I have realized that decision shouldn't have been so difficult because it's really the world is changing. People are trying different things. In, In my sector, people move around a lot. And one decision is really not setting your career direction for the rest of your life. So I would encourage people to really think about what it is they value, and whether that's what they're getting at the moment in their work environment, and if it's not, maybe that it's time for a change. And although we talked about how difficult it is at the moment to have that two-sector mobility, I don't think it's impossible to go back to the academic sector. I've already had questions actually from people in the research on research space whether I would all what I would ever considering going into that space. So it would be a different discipline, but it, it's all becoming more dynamic, and I think people should really think about uh, whether they're getting out of their work and their work environment, what, what is important to them, and if not, to not be too afraid of change because um, change can be a good thing, and and I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity to move around, especially now.
0: Yeah, that's great. Karen, I, thank you so much for your contributions today and the really interesting discussions and i i will provide links on the web page to the, the, the many of the names and papers and that you've referenced thank you for your work in being part of make making that change happen and, and glad that you did make the decision to leave and shift directions to contribute to this and hopefully this will encourage lots of other people to get involved as well whether it's in the small conversations in their workplaces or being part of trying to push the the agreement or whatever. So thank you very much for your time.
1: Thanks for inviting me. And, of course, I also hope many people will get involved in all the different ways because we really need all those different levels from the small conversations to the senior management team signing up. So, um, yeah, hopefully we'll get a lot more engagement over the coming months and years. Thanks very much for inviting me.
0: So glad to have been able to bring you this conversation with Karen about such an important topic. And I'd repeat the call for each of us to be part of making this change happen, from the small conversations we can have every day, to encouraging our senior management and organisations to sign up to the agreement. And then there's the work of how to put the agreement to work in, in a practical sense. And I also just remind you that as this conversation was recorded in May, you may want to make sure to check out the COARA website, COARA.eu, to see where it's at now. And if you like this conversation, you might also be interested in listening to other changing academic life conversations on similar themes. And I'm thinking here of the more recent conversations with Sarah Davies around research, researchers, research cultures with Tanita Kasky and Elizabeth Adams from Glasgow UNI around uh, including collegiality as part of research evaluation and the conversation with James Wilsden on metrics and responsible research evaluation. (laughs) You can find the summary notes, a transcript and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. And you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen.